If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Hey, Mr. Trudeau, you've got some mighty big fences to mend. Where are you? Here's Scott Thompson. Come together, everybody. Come on, everybody gather. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton Today. Will Weber on the board. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Uh, the latest we'll get to uh, in just a sec. Obviously, some uh, protests in various major cities across the country over the course of the weekend. Uh, and all of them have come and gone, pretty much, and and yet we still have problems uh, in Ottawa. And the big question is, where is the Prime Minister? Here we are on day 11 of this, and now uh, safety ministers and such are coming out and, and saying that they're now going to work with uh, the City of Ottawa and the Mayor and, and the Province of Ontario and whatever to uh, to try to get this uh, moving and it, it's funny that day eleven with still no movement, so many are trying to push this off to the province. <laughs> like you know, uh, it, it's bizarre. Uh, this isn't on uh, on the front steps of any premier right now. This is on the front steps of the prime minister, and it has been since the very beginning of all of this. And he kind of ignored it, downplayed it. Uh, in the past, it's called uh, people who didn't agree with him uh, racist and misogynistic on French radio. And now he's created this massive division in our country over a very small percentage of people who aren't vaccinated. And the only ones that are left are the are the hardcore man. I mean, everybody else went home after the first weekend. So, uh, you know, again, where is the prime minister on this? Wellington uh, is the center main street of the parliamentary precinct. That's that's federal. That's federal land. The people did not come to visit any premier. They didn't come to visit the premier of B.C. or Alberta or, or uh, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec. They all went home. They've come to see the prime minister. And once again, the prime minister is gone, stokes the fire, divides the country over an extremely small percentage of the unvaccinated. I mean, my goodness, we should be patting ourselves on the back. How many we've got vaccinated? Instead, we have come to this. And now at day 11, uh, the premier's uh, ministers are saying, you know, we have to work with uh, all levels of government to try to get this rectified. Meanwhile, the people in Ottawa are going absolutely nuts. This this ended being a protest uh, a long time ago. Now it's hardcore. And and again, the divisions that have been created here can only be resolved by the prime minister, not by the premier of a province, not by the mayor of a city, not by a city's police department. Again, the prime minister has poked the bear and he's run away. 
where are the meetings? Where are the all the branches? Finally, at least we're getting police going in and and shutting down uh, fuel supplies and 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 shutting down funds through the GoFundMe account. But again, where's the prime minister in all of this? And instead, just like throughout the pandemic when it came to vaccination, shoving the responsibility off onto the mayors and the cities and the premiers. You know, there was all substantial uh, demonstrations in other parts of the country. Then they moved on. So, you know, it, it just seems bizarre that we're at this place and, and, and now two weeks out, they're starting to pass the buck. You know, they've been waiting outside the prime minister's door for two weeks almost. Was it 11 days now? So what do you do now? What, how, do you get, how do you back out of this? Because doing what's best for the city of Ottawa, doing what's best for the country, is probably not going to be the best for the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister. So, you know, it's bizarre to me that this is, has, you know, allowed it to, that we've allowed this to go on uh, as long as it has. It's bizarre. And now a judge has uh, granted an injunction against the horn honking downtown. This just came in moments ago. Uh, and the Ontario Superior Court Justice has granted a 10-day injunction to prevent parked truckers on the city streets in downtown from honking their horns incessantly. Uh, This is temporary because he needs to hear more evidence, but has heard enough to make this ruling today. A lawyer representing the Ottawa residents uh, is proposed a multi-million dollar class action suit uh, that has argued the loud and prolonged honking is causing an irreparable harm. Irreparable harm. Well, of course. My goodness. I can't imagine what that would be like. So, uh, again, where is the Prime Minister? This is now in a, after 11 days, into an Ontario court? Well, the gavel's come down. Great. Now what do we do? I don't know, because we're pretty much, you know, in a state of emergency, of course, declared in the city of Ottawa as well, which I guess opens up the doors to to ask uh, the feds and the province for, for help in this. But this is something that should have been resolved long ago, long ago. And, it, and instead, nobody took it seriously. Nobody wanted to listen. Nobody wanted to hear the other side of the story. And now the other side of the story has just gotten absolutely ugly. You know, this started with, you know, we were talking to Ken Mann, who was interviewing people along uh, the Hamilton uh, version of this of this protest as it was going to Ottawa on the very first weekend. And, you know, it was, he described quite an atmosphere. You know, he's talking to vaccinated people who just were tired of of the overreach. Now, of course, it's the hardcore that is left. And again, if you don't sit down and talk to two sides, how do you expect to resolve an issue? And even the NDP, Jugmeet Singh, has said today in a news conference, we need an emergency debate to figure out how we move forward with this. Not only with resolving the issues in Ottawa, but moving on with a global pandemic. Especially when two weeks ago, two weeks ago, Dr. Bonnie Henry out of BC and Dr. Kieran Moore out of Ontario said, got to move on with this, got to learn to live with it. Here we are still vilifying a small percentage and look what it has become when you divide 
a country. It's sad, really. As you may have heard yesterday, uh, yesterday marked the uh, 70th anniversary of the Queen uh, taking over from her late father, marking her 70 years on the throne. Uh, not the official day she likes to celebrate for obvious reasons, but uh, an incredible, incredible historic accomplishment. And I don't think too many of us can remember a time without her being around. Let's bring in Patricia Treble, founder of Right Royalty, royal contributor to McLean's, and is with us now. Patricia, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, it was my pleasure, Scott. I am well. My goodness, 70 years. Think about it. It is incredible. It, 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 it is incredible. I remember my mother talking about it because my mother and father were married in 1952, the same year uh, that she took the throne. But explain the, histor- uh, the historic significance of this date and why they celebrate uh, the actual anniversary later. Well, look, I mean, this is the day, it, to be honest, it's, it's the day her father died, right? Her yeah. beloved father. Um, so she always celebrates, she always marks it. She never celebrates it. She always marks it in private. Um, usually at Sandringham, and that's where he died. Um, but I mean, look, 70 years. I mean, more than, last time I did the count, more than 90% of Canadians have known no other monarch. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was, I was talking with, I was talking with a cousin, and, uh, and what we were told, it was the only, the, the death of King George VI in 1952 was the only time anyone ever saw my grandfather cry. Mm. And, you know, people remember, people remember that, you know, going out in the streets and all of a sudden people were just crying, openly crying. I mean, this is a man who saw everyone through the war. Um, you know, he, he wasn't a military leader. He wasn't a political leader. But he had this amazing influence. And it's an influence that was passed on to her. And she's followed in his footsteps for 70 years. It's amazing even thinking the leaders and the conflicts that she's seen over time. I mean, you certainly can't say she hasn't seen it all. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, is that she apparently, from, uh, from everyone, and prime ministers and presidents will talk about this very discreetly, but they'll say she knows all the gossip. Yeah. You know, political gossip. She knows who's in, she knows who's out. And she can also talk to them in complete confidence. And, and apparently this is why prime ministers love going to talk to her. You know, British prime ministers talk to her every week. Canadian prime ministers talk to her on a regular basis about what's happening here. Because they know it, it's a one-way street. They can talk about all this stuff and they know she won't repeat it. It won't then go from there into the press. And she also, of course, has this amazing font of knowledge over, you know, she can say, oh, well, yeah. you know, so-and-so Been there. 30 years ago. Try this, you know. So um, who will, you know, we talked to so many aspects of the monarchy, and you've just brought up a, a, an incredible one there, Patricia. So who replaces that figurehead in the world? Who well, then becomes the mentor exactly. for de- the democracy in the free world? Well, and when you think about it, though, the natural successor obviously is is her son, right? Um, Charles is seventy three. He's again, he's been doing his job for so long that yeah. he's built up all these relationships, and he's taking on increasingly more roles. And of course, the Queen on the eve of Accession Day gave him the one gift he's always wanted, and that that is his her public request that Camilla be Queen Consort. How big a deal is that? Because, again, this is all coming out in a, in a timely manner, uh, obviously getting the ducks in a row and such. And this would have been a very, very difficult conversation a few decades ago. So uh, how, how, how are those in the U.K. accepting this? 
apparently public opinion polls have really jumped on this. I mean, they were mm-hmm. always quite divided. Um, because remember, I, if anyone remembers, when they first got married in 2005, and think about how long ago that was, it's near, we're coming up in 20 years, um, that was only eight years after Diana had died. And yeah. so they said that she would not take the role of, she would not take the title of queen, but she would become princess consort. And it was just, it was a salve to everyone who just loved Diana and who just, just had this, you know, recoil um, that somebody else would have that title, that it should have been Diana's. But I think times have changed. Um, she has shown mm. herself to be an incredibly strong worker. She's She's got a great sense of humor. Anyone who's ever seen her on tour, I've seen her on tour several times here. She has an amazing sense of humor. Um, and she's an amazing support for Charles. And I think that's what the Queen emphasized, is that she emphasized that she had Philip. Her mother had, you know, her mother was an amazing support to George VI. Mm-hmm. And that it's the sacrifices of the role of concert. You're always two steps behind. Yeah. And that you need somebody who loves and supports you. And that that's, that's Camilla. And I'm going to be blunt. She's built up 70 years of, of you know, of credit. And mm. she's going to use it. She's going to use everything she's built up to make everything go well for her son. How will this transition take place? I mean, is, do, it, does it wait till she passes? Is it a gradual thing? We're seeing this now, the, the groundwork being laid. When do you think the actual transition will take place? Oh, transition takes place at her death. I mean, she's made it clear, and she yeah. made it clear in this message, she's not going anywhere. Um, they just also released mm. today a whole series of events. She's she's back at Windsor Castle. Um she you know gone to Sandringham for you know to mark this day, and she's back in Windsor Castle and she's starting to gear up. So obviously the illnesses, the back, the backache and everything are behind her from last fall, and it looks like March is going to be busy. Um, so she's continuing on with her work. It was very very ostentatious, no sign of giving up. Charles takes on more and more of the duties that require somebody out and about. You know, yeah. the, the royal tours, the sort of stuff that, you know, she can't do uh, anymore. And she shouldn't have to do anymore. She is the chair Un- of the board. He is the president. See Unbelievable uh, and, and incredible. Uh, 70 years uh, anniversary, if you want to call it that, on the throne as of yesterday. Patricia Treble with us, founder of Right Royal, royal contributor to McLean's. Thank you so much, uh, Patricia. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Olympics going on. We're going to talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Have you watched the mixed uh, doubles curling? It's kind of like, well, the only thing that's missing is the drinks. Anyway, I digress. We'll talk about that later. Let's talk about racing uh, and bring in Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. And, of course, you can hear him right on uh, right here on CHML every Sunday night. He's with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. I think I'd rather, though, talk about drinking and curling if it's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, I had hey, a... Hey, hard, hard. I know. I, I had a sports prof on from Brock talking about it. He goes, really, you got to watch this. And, and on the weekend, I did, and it's uh, it, it's pretty bizarre. It's like a timed event, and um, anyway, yeah. we'll talk about that later. Uh, let let's talk about other things that go it, around. Can they kick it up a little more bizarre? Do you know? I'll, yeah. I don't know if they still do it. But I know that there are some radio stations in Saskatchewan who actually do play-by-play of curling on the radio, like hockey. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, hold, hold me down there, boy, let me tell you. <laughs> I bet you haven't done that in your time. Uh, and if you do, I'd love to I'd love to hear some old tape of that. All right, I digress. And, and cheers to everybody who loves the game of curling. Um, oh, exactly. All right. I, have, I have relatives who play it and everything else. It's fine. Sure. You're all, all great people. All right. So uh, racing, uh, obviously the Daytona 500 in two weeks. They have qualifying mm-hmm. races. They've done this in the Los Angeles Coliseum. Uh, I'm applauding this in the sense that they've gone back to short tracks. Uh, the car yeah. actually looks like a car that you might see on the street, too, which is an interesting when it comes to to uh, stock car racing your thoughts on what you saw over the weekend we're going to try to hit a, a few things here what do you what, what are your thoughts on on what you saw you and i are, are kind of purists so anytime you can go back to a short track you know it's a good thing because that's the kind of stuff that we grew up with you know either on the dirt at, at Merrittville, ransomville or Oshwegan or, or at places like like flamborough and other tracks where you know these were full-bodied stock cars on a short track where you're in contact all the time uh, the idea of bringing it to the LA Coliseum was really a good move on NASCAR's part for bringing the show to fans who may not have been exposed to it. And it's almost the same philosophy when IndyCar first started the Indy in Toronto. Instead of making people yeah. go out to a racetrack, Scott, it, it was bringing the race to where they live in the streets downtown. It's the same kind of philosophy. And I think you know there's there's so many unknowns this year, led by the fact that this is what's known as the next-gen or next-generation car, where the bodies are no longer fabricated in the shop from sheet steel and welded to the frame. These are now composite bodies that are plastic, reinforced with carbon fiber that come preformed, and you simply bolt them to the frame. Now, one of the good things that happened, and Joey Logano talked about this, you're going to hear this on Raceline on Sunday night, is the fact that you know, they didn't know it was a great unknown short track. You're in traffic all the time. You can lean and bump and bang with these guys, and yeah. the body's not going to come apart like a razor blade and slice and cut down your tires. The old steel bodies of the cup cars, you know, just a little bit of cosmetic damage caused supreme tire failure, and you had guys' days ruined because of that. These bodies are going to allow you to lean on people a little bit more, which is perfect for tracks like Martinsville and Bristol. I'm going to be curious to see what it does arrow-wise for places like you mentioned, Daytona, and the one-and-a-half-milers that are very prolific on the schedule. You know, and, and the wheels are different now. They've got that center-locking hub as yeah. opposed to the five lug nuts. That's going to change how pit stops are executed. So, you know, I, I, I was not a fan of, of the of the halftime show there, but that's just my musical taste and genre. But I thought it was, it was you know, you know I, I, I don't know. I, I don't cotton to that at all, but the other people do. And that's fine. Not everybody likes tapioca pudding, but that's another story. The idea is that this was an entertaining race in short track, and, and the bodies held up, and don't they look a little bit more like Mustangs and Camaros and Camrays? It is supposed to be stock car racing, is yeah, it not? Yeah. These cars are far from stock. They're all rear-wheel drive as opposed. I didn't even mind the fact that the logos now with a shorter rear quarter panel forces the sponsor logos up more to the center of the car, and the car number is pushed further forward, closer to the front wheel wells. I didn't mind that. I, I thought it was. I, I wasn't going to like it, but it looked balanced. I thought it looked okay, and we yeah. saw a pretty yeah, good I, I, race. It was pretty I, good. Pretty good. 
I, I thought the cars look absolutely fabulous in everything you've just yeah, said about you. them. And and again, I've said for a long, long time that you know uh, this is is not the days of old stock car racing. These cars are built to do 200 miles an hour for 500 laps, so there's no sport right. there. Putting them no. on a and, and they're working on this, putting them back to smaller, small like really fast cars on a really small track or a road yep. course. That seems to be the way this is going now. It was good, and you know, and and NASCAR has kind of stagnated. The last couple of years with the with the older car in terms of well COVID of course knocked it for a loop but I mean you know they're looking for ways to bring new people into the tent and how many times have you and I talked about that and it's not just NASCAR it's any other series out there why do you think Formula One did that Netflix series to try and yeah. bring new eyeballs in that weren't necessarily race fans but they were drama and people fans and that's what helped bring people in to their tent into their fan base and NASCAR is trying that. It's too bad they get to tear the darn thing down right after it. As, as, as somebody said today, it, they could have run some midget car races on that. But it, it was an historic place. There was an Olympic tie-in, which was really good. And I thought the idea was fine. And in the end, let's remember, it needs to be an entertaining uh, automobile race. And it turned out to be yeah. that way. And, 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 and right. I thought, you hit a home run. Go ahead. Uh, you were talking about F1 and such. Can't let you go without getting your thoughts. Where are we going into this season? What's the story with Lewis Hamilton? We remember how the season ended and such, and there was lots of controversy. How do they start this season with a clean slate? I will be the most shocked person in the world if Lewis Hamilton is not back this year with Mercedes to try and grab that record-breaking eighth championship that was stolen from him by the race director in the F1 rulebook in that final race at Abu Dhabi last year. He has been absolutely silent, although, you know, not in terms of commenting on that. He's, he's, you know, he's on social media giving water to his bulldog, dancing with his relatives, this kind of thing, but he hasn't said anything about coming back. I'm, I'm going to be totally shocked if he doesn't come back. The job isn't finished yet, man. He's still got seven. That's yeah. the record. He needs to break the record. If he's not there to, 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 to say, okay, come on, take it away from me again. I'm just going to be more determined than ever and race harder than ever and come back and win that thing clean and show everybody that it can be done and uh, get around the robbery that took place at Abu Dhabi. As a result of that robbery, as you put it, uh, will there be any rules changes? I, I said to you last yeah. uh, when this ended last season that you know it amazes me that during the midst of a competition, a coach or whatever gets to come on and argue <laughs> with an official. I just find Dumb. that astounding. So anything Dumb. that's come out of that that's changed anything for the next year? I think, Scott, that's going to be the primary rule change for next year. I think the first domino that has to fall is that Michael Massey is replaced as the race director or as already has been sort of scouted out and, and, and predicted is that a lot of his during race duties are going to be fanned out to other people and, and, and he won't have as much on his plate. And that, that ridiculous, ridiculous rule that allows the race directors to chirp into the race director's ear during races, that is going to be stopped. And that seems to be the one rule that really bothers a lot of people. And, and that's probably the two main areas they're going to change. I won't be surprised if Michael Massey is replaced. And I certainly won't be surprised if they stop that ridiculous conduit on the radio from the team principals to the guy running the race during the race, which was completely absurd and led to uh, a lot of the confusion that caused that drama in, uh, in the closer last year. Unbelievable. And, you know, we'll have you on again soon to talk about the local tracks as they get opened up as well, because uh, it looks like hopefully we're going to get a good year in here. Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, heard Sundays, uh, Sunday nights right here on CHML. You be well, Eric. You too, Scooter. We'll talk to you again soon, and uh, we'll look forward to doing some more with you, buddy. 
couple of developments in uh, the story of the Ottawa protest, obviously over the weekend, state of emergency being called. And uh, just recently, a, uh, a Ontario Superior, uh, Superior Court judge has granted a 10-day injunction to prevent truckers parked on city streets in downtown Ottawa from honking their horns incessantly. It's temporary because uh, the judge needs to hear more evidence, but has heard enough to make this ruling today. And, of course, to talk more about all of this, Mercedes Stevenson is with us. Uh, Global News and, of course, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global National. Mercedes, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. How are you? I'm good, but I can't hear any horns in the background, so that's a good sign. What's it like in Ottawa today? What was the mood like compared to the weekend? Uh, well, the the horns are still here. <laughs> you can't hear them at the moment, but they've, they've quietened down somewhat uh, because even the, the protests, own lawyers and organizers are starting to realize that it's costing them support uh, because it essentially is deafening. It, it was last week. I lived downtown. I work downtown. Um, you could not get away from it, and people felt like they were going crazy. They were going at all hours of the days and nights. Uh, you could say that's just horns, but they're air horns on semis, in stereo, with yeah. a bunch of them for hours and hours. Um, and, and it really was wearing on people's mental health. So that has quietened down. Uh, there are smaller numbers here, certainly than the weekend and, and from last week, that I'm seeing anecdotally from uh, walking to work, from looking out my condo window, from uh, crews walking around. But it's still substantial, and there are still blocks and blocks back from Parliament Hill that are completely blocked off by semis and vehicles. And some blocks have almost emptied out. But what the protesters are doing is blocking the lanes by parking their vehicles sideways across the street. So there might only be two or three trucks on one block, but it's still impassable because it's been physically blocked by the trucks uh, across it. So it's still very much here no sign that these protesters are looking at, at leaving. Uh, it ebbs and flows in size. It's not surprising that on the weekends there's more people because folks who have jobs uh, go to those jobs during the week and then are able to come during the weekend. We also see more people sometimes going up at night um, because it's after work. But there, there's no sign that this protest is going to be shutting down anytime soon or what a, a sort of end game looks like here. Uh, speaking of end game, state of emergency over the weekend. Now this injunction. What does that mean, Mercedes? Moving forward, what extra power does that give anybody? How does that change the game? Well, we're still trying to get a sense of what it means in particular for police enforcement, um, and this has been the big question, right? Uh, the Ottawa police have said that they are essentially outnumbered and overrun, and they are afraid of violence, and so they won't actually enforce certain laws because they are afraid of confronting the protesters. You can imagine the level of shock that produced for Ottawa residents because we live in a society where typically when you call the police and a law is being broken, the police enforce the law. That is not happening. And not only is it not happening, they've been saying they're unable to do so. Um, injunctions can do a, a number of things. It could do everything from giving the police extra powers or making um, some of the, the, the possible outcomes uh, more significant. So, for example, with some kinds of injunctions, it would allow the police to potentially seize a truck and that truck would become the property of the government and be sold off. So it wouldn't just be impounded. It would be gone mm. forever. Um, and that might be motivating. Uh, there's also questions about insurance here, by the way, just as a side note, away from the injunction. Some insurance carriers are starting to say they may void the insurance on these semi-trucks. That's a big deal if you're a trucker, that what's being done here is not what is consistent with the insurance and it could void it. Uh, that could be very expensive. So they're looking at some financial ways to try to cut things. Uh, but right now, really, the question is, you know, all the court injunctions and everything else, 
What do you do if tow trucks are refusing to tow, uh, if you're not able to cut off fuel lines, if you're not able to cut off um, financial supply lines, which are huge? We were down at their Coventry base, which was raided by the police late last night um, after they convinced the protesters to relocate there. And our crews were saying, like, it is organized. Um, it, it looks like extremely professional. They have frozen meat. They have barbecue lines. They had saunas. They had uh, were coordinating how much more supplies they needed, who was going to get the Man. toilet paper, who was going to get the paper towels. We were talking Costco stacks of them. Uh, they are not running out of supplies anytime soon. Those were seized by the police. But if they still have millions of dollars coming in, kind of just go make another Costco run. Um, so Day- the big thing here is how do you move forward? Uh, it's hard to believe this has been going on for 11 days. Now you're talking about saunas and, and what have you. Where is the prime minister on all of this? We know that he was sick last week, but we're at day 11. Um, it, it seems as if the feds are trying to push this off on to the provinces. Where's the PM? Yeah, so he's he's in Ottawa. We know that. We're around Ottawa. He could be at Harrington Lake. Um, a second one of his children were diagnosed with COVID, so he has been in isolation. Mind you, we have seen him give lots of press conference from, conferences from isolation. He did speak on Friday, but he and his government have been categoric that they will not meet with the protesters. So whether he comes out to do other things or saying that doesn't matter, he is still not going to talk to the protesters. Um, and that is what some of these protesters want. And beyond that, some say they don't care if he talks. They want the mandates gone. And there's varying views on whether or not meeting with the protesters would be productive. Some folks say, no, we shouldn't be meeting with them. This is an illegal blockade. It will send the wrong message about how you get politicians to listen to you and how things get done in a democracy. Others say, look, alienating people and not meeting with them is just making it worse. Mm. At least listen, even if you don't follow through. Perhaps that would help to to bring the temperature down. And on some of the, you know, folks who are out there just because they're frustrated with COVID protocols, they might listen. It's going to do nothing for the folks who say they want the government replaced with a citizens committee. That doesn't happen. In no, no. So but are we are expecting folks who are just upset? Are we expecting to hear from the prime minister soon? Not that I'm aware of. Mercedes um, Stevenson with we, us. We uh, don't know about that until, uh, until right. the night before. So. I hear you. Mercedes Stevenson with us, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global National. Good luck, Mercedes, with all of this. Take care. Thanks, you too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's talk Olympics. Have you been watching? It's pretty cool. Uh, It's always fun to watch, uh, especially winter sports, man. Some of the skiing and, uh, and, you know, I even, I was even watching mixed doubles curling. Uh, this weekend, but also, uh, unfortunately, with the games, especially uh, when in Beijing and uh, the issues between Canada and China and the rest of the free world, uh, it is rife with political tension and opportunity. Let's bring in Dr. David Black, Ph.D., Lester B. Pearson, Professor of International Development Studies at uh, Studies Department of Political Science, Dalhousie University, and with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks. I'm fine. Thanks for having me. It was interesting uh, earlier on in the weekend, I think just before the weekend, when there was a nice photo op with the president of Russia and the president of China together. Uh, what does that, uh, that photo op and that situation say uh, just by those two alone? 
Well, it says something about who is there and who is supportive of uh, the Chinese regime and of this particular Olympic Games and who is not. Uh, and we're seeing a, a steady emergence of a kind of uh, alignment of uh, strong authoritarian regimes that are increasingly taking a, an antagonistic dis, uh, stance towards Western governments. And on the other hand, relatively few Western leaders, even those who didn't formally uh, announced that they were imposing a diplomatic boycott are present or were present uh, for the opening ceremonies, for example. So there's growing tensions uh, between, uh, between this uh, cluster of authoritarian governments and Western governments in general. Uh, now, uh, obviously, with what's happening on the border of Ukraine and Russia, does that hold any significance with this uh, picture as well? Which side everyone's on? Yeah, um, I, I, you know, of course, it's the interesting thing about about the Olympic, this particular Olympics, is it uh, it's it's the second Olympic center winter second winter Olympics since the Sochi Games in 2014. And of course, shortly after the 2014 Winter Olympics, uh, the uh, the Russian military invaded and, and annexed Crimea. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, and, and at the time, one of the principal supporters uh, and, and most visible presences at the Sochi Winter Olympics was, in fact, Xi Jinping, the leader of China. So it, it underscores the degree to which uh, there's a sense uh, that these states, uh, these governments support each other in uh, exercising their prerogative within what uh, we would have uh, described as their sphere of influence. Uh, so, so, uh, and we can assume that there will be reciprocity, that the Chinese will, will, uh, will certainly not um, uh, crit criticize whatever Russia is doing in, uh, in its own uh, sphere of influence around Ukraine. We remember uh, prior to the Olympics, there was lots of chatter of, of whether it should be boycotted or not. It ended up the athletes are going, diplomats stay home. I think that was maybe one uh, for Canada. Uh, in retrospect, should maybe the diplomats be there, um, uh, you know, just to even monitor what's going on and, and sort of be represented as opposed to uh, snubbing it? Uh, is it best to stay away from situations like this? Is it best to be a fly on the wall? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And it's an always um, a debate as to whether when relations are tense, as they are between China and much of the Western world, certainly between Canada, the Canadian government and the Chinese government, whether it's better to be present to try to monitor the situation and look for uh, opportunities to ameliorate the situation, make, make sure your athletes are secure, um, or whether it's better to signal your disapproval. And I actually think that the diplomatic boycott was... Uh, was a sound step. It was a low intensity step. The relationship is very important. You don't want to jeopardize uh, it unnecessarily. But on the other hand, uh, you couldn't uh, say the things that you're saying about what's going on uh, in Xinjiang and other human rights uh, situations in China and not send some sort of clear signal of disapproval. There's lots of opportunities to monitor the situation in China. Lots of other people are still present there. It's the high-level diplomatic presence that is absent. Does it matter anyway, considering the games aren't really, uh, they're an anomaly anyway, because they've been run during a, uh, a global pandemic, which sees nobody at the game. So does it really even matter at this point? Uh, whether whether uh, diplomats are not there or, yeah. or are. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't matter 
nearly as much as it would have, of course, in normal times. The COVID yeah. context has changed the equation dramatically. It's made it much easier in many ways for China to secure its, its uh, environment and to prevent people from roaming around the country and reporting uh, in ways that the Chinese government might feel uncomfortable about. Uh, so so it is. it has mitigated the impact. Um, and in some ways, again, that's not, not a a bad thing. Uh, it allows the Chinese government, in a certain sense, to save face. But it also uh, it also uh, means that that the the danger of escalation is is diminished somewhat from what it would be otherwise. Uh, what about the athletes themselves? Their security. There's been um, uh, social media uh, picks up on some of the from some of the athletes who've been quarantined. They're showing you what you're eating. It's pretty deplorable stuff. Uh, has there been any comments on how the athletes are being treated, specifically those in quarantine? So there's there's lots of commentary early on in the games. It's always hard to know what this is going to add up to. What is the dominant narrative of this Olympics going to be in the long term? Uh, you know, we, if you if you think back to 2010 in Vancouver, the first two or three days of the Olympics, uh, everyone uh, was reporting that this was the worst games ever, uh, the most incompetently organized and so on, and then quickly turned around. Uh, so we don't know exactly what the ultimate story will be. Uh, however, having said that, you know, there was a lot of concern about whether uh, infringements on athletes' rights to speak up about the political situation in Beijing uh, in fact, uh, what is likely to prove to be more uh, negative is the kind of the the complaints about the conditions, the the draconian character of the security measures, which were inevitable under the circumstances. It was similar in Tokyo in lots of ways. They're more efficient in China, more comprehensive. Uh, but but those things will actually diminish the what what political scientists call the soft power, the appeal of this games. Uh, and the the uh, happy memories that will be associated with it and the goodwill that will be generated by it. Dr. David Black with us, Lester B. Pearson, Professor of International Development Studies, Department of Political Science, Dalhousie University, talking about the politics that are always around an Olympics, especially this time in Beijing 2022. David, thank you for the time. Be well. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. The latest in the Ottawa protest, uh, the mayor of Ottawa has now officially asked the federal government and the provincial government for 1,800 uh, additional officers. This comes at day 11 of all of this. Uh, unbelievable to think. Also, an injunction has been granted by an Ontario Superior Judge, court judge, saying that they have to stop blowing their horns for 10 days. Now, if it was only this easy, why didn't we do it earlier? You know, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And earlier on, Safety Minister uh, Bill Blair saying uh, he can't tell what the police to do, basically passing the buck off uh, to the city to handle all of this. Jugmeet Singh, he's not buying that. Uh, he was ha- held a news conference earlier today and asked where the prime minister is and why he's not doing anything. We have a crisis on our hands and we need to immediately have the prime minister representing the federal level of the federal government, meet with the affected municipalities to offer any help that we can to solve this problem. We've been in this crisis for 10 days and he's not really been present. Uh, I think it just makes sense that if you're the prime minister of Canada and the capital is going through this crisis, 
prime minister's got to be present in a crisis like this, provide leadership. Where is Justin Trudeau? That is the big question. And uh, even Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, wants a uh, emergency debate on all of this in the House of Commons. And uh, the prime minister is uh, booked a personal day off today. We know he was suffering from COVID earlier, but we were all told that was mild and uh, he didn't have the symptoms or what have you. And uh, always tickety-boo, you can still do all of this virtually remotely. Uh, but it seems that after starting the fire, uh, Bill Blair is leaving it up to the cities. Uh, now the city's officially asking for help uh, from both the feds and the provinces as a state of emergency has been called. And now this injunction in regard to the car horns. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, thank you for the time. Your thoughts? Okay, well... It's clear that, uh, you know, the, it, this is a very, very difficult situation. And uh, the federal government basically does not have what seems to be a workable solution to this problem. Um, and so uh, I do think that the, about the only thing on the table right now is Jagmeet Singh calling for a uh, special session of the parliament where, where the pressure will be on him and other people to come up with practical solutions and uh, one of which I think is floating around, and also uh, is fr- a lot of it from the uh, mayor of Ottawa, is uh, basically having a uh, somebody who is very important, appointed by the federal government to essentially to try- talk to the leaders and to uh, also to, to come with uh, you know municipal leadership as well. So I assume that's Jim Watson and maybe some other. I don't know whether he went out mayors in other places like John Tory. I don't know, but any event some. Something new has to be tried here because this is just it's, it really is a, is a very difficult situation that can, you know, seemingly go on for a long period of time. Are you surprised that the prime minister hasn't uh, spoken up about this and, and seems to be pushing it off on to either the city of Ottawa or, or the provinces? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Wellington Street is in the middle of uh, uh, the parliamentary precinct. It's, right. it's federal land. They're not protesting on the premier's front lawns. They're, pro- they're protesting on the prime minister's front lawn. Are you surprised we haven't heard from them? I know. He, he basically adopted the strategy as saying, nope, I'm not going to deal with these people, and yeah. uh, they're going to have to just go away. Well, <laughs> they're not going away. I mean, and, and it's clear with the large mass of people who came in, and plus those big trucks, uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, the, the, the city police are overmanned. Uh, I mean, they're trying, they're working hard to try to, you know, enforce some laws now, but I mean, Obviously, some mistakes were made. I mean, they gave them, uh, they allowed the, them to have a parking lot. Now that parking lot, they found a big fuel ta- uh, uh, tank there that came in to, uh, you know, re- to give pass fuel along to all the trucks that are downtown. Uh, they have uh, food, you know, they have they've brought in food. Um, and they've used that as a base. Now they now they, I understand the police have so- seized the uh, fuel truck, but I mean uh, this is a fairly what increasingly looks like a fairly organized group, and uh, you know it, it, it looks like it's going to be very very hard to uh, get them to move uh, using the resources of just the Ottawa police. And I'm not really sure whether the federal and provincial government can pull all those police out and send them to, you know, from them, uh, from their own jurisdictions and send them to Ottawa. So this is a very, I, so, you know, they've, 
probably maybe the best thing to try now is to appoint somebody, the federal government to appoint somebody to basically try to talk to the leaders, try to reach some sort of accommodation to get them out of there. But that seems to be the only viable thing to me that's on the table right now and only and and you know a par you know a debate in the parliament and then uh, uh, getting the federal government to agree to that was is probably the best thing to do right now we'll just have to see whether that happens will the prime minister pay for this politically do you think henry i mean you, you know uh, he, he's refused to even acknowledge this group when they came obviously hit his own peril uh and now he's he's missing an action will he pay for this politically because well, I mean, it seems he's he's shoving it on to everyone else that's right. We're shutting the other d- jurisdictions. Now, um, you don't, I mean, okay, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He's with his family recovering sure. from COVID, but he runs a government. You know, there's all sorts of people in his cabinet who could take over. Bill Blair and other people, you know, <laughs> he had, he has other people in the government who can do the job. He, he, you know, they're not solely dependent on him. So, you know, but the government, but the, the, the line is, you know, we're right, you're wrong, get out of here. And that's, it's yeah. not, that's not working. It's just not working. And so they've got to basically, you know, come up with a different type of solution here. And, you have uh, to wonder what the mood is like between the office of the mayor and the office of the prime minister. Yeah, I think the, I think the, I think the, uh, you know, the mayor is pretty, probably upset with Trudeau. And what is interesting here, of course, is uh, people might not know is that, or remember that Jim Watson was a liberal uh, minister yeah. in the, in the uh, McGinty government. So we're talking about somebody who's a dyed-in-the-wool uh, liberal, and he's, you know, and he's not getting any support from the liberal federal government. And uh, probably, and, and I think Jagmeet Singh, with his argument that we've got to get the, uh, the municipal people, uh, leaders in, involved in this, in the solution, uh, with the with the federal government is you know an interesting way of maybe just p- trying to peel him away from the federal government and say listen we're, we're the ones that are really going to try to get things going here so we'll have to see whether whether we're going to get that special session in parliament and what they're going to do or special uh, debate in parliament and what they're going to do but clearly something new has to happen here Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh calling the federal leadership, calling out the federal leadership and saying they need an emergency uh, debate in the House of Commons. Henry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I'm watching the Olympics. Are you into it? Are you getting You know, it's kind of bizarre without anybody in the crowd, but man, I guess we're kind of used to that by now. Uh, also, what I noticed is kind of weird is you see all of these beautiful sil- uh, facilities and all this beautiful white snow, and then the camera pack, uh, pans back. And the only snow you see is what they've blown around the area of, uh, you know, the park that they're in. You, you see up in the mountains, whatever, everything's brown. There's no snow in the place other than what they've made. And, you know, I'm watching ski jumping the other day or no, uh, what was it? Freestyle. And, you know, they're doing the jumps in the background of the nuclear towers, which I thought was uh, interesting, but fascinating. Nonetheless, as we watch Team Canada uh, compete on the world stage, let's bring in Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic, uh, theathletic.com to find out more and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, let's talk about hockey because big game tonight. Obviously, it's been great watching the women's uh, hockey team. They never uh, seem to let us down. A couple of hat tricks the other night. What can we expect, though, uh, with the big rivalry against the U.S.? 
Well, I mean, here in the COVID games, uh, you're never quite sure, are you? Uh, mm. I mean, obviously, last night's game with the Russian Olympic Committee, not to be confused with Russia, the country. Remember, Russia has been penalized and obviously can't fly the flag here, even though they do. But I digress. Uh, last night's game was delayed an hour because of uh, pending COVID tests. Uh, mm. Russia had, had been playing short for a few games, and uh, they both ended up, the short, long story short, is they both ended up on the ice wearing N95 masks for the first two periods. Second intermission, tests arrive, Russia takes the masks off, Canada keeps theirs on, wins 6-1. Uh, tonight, by the way, uh, Canada had to pull a player off because of, a, of a, uh, an incomplete, I guess, COVID-19 test, so they're going to have to get her retested. And you know, maybe get her back in the lineup for tonight. But yeah, tonight is tonight is the epic rivalry. Tonight is tonight is what I would argue is the greatest rivalry that the Winter Olympics offer every four years. What are you expecting? Well, I expect, I mean, it's going to be a, a tight game. They rarely, rarely, rarely ever get two or three goal spreads. Um, I think that, you know, you're going to see the best women in world hockey competing against each other. And even though it is a preliminary round game, they never take a game off when it's Canada against the U.S. What about the men's team? Haven't heard much of them, obviously, because the NHL is not involved. Uh, What's the speculation there? Well, I mean, the speculation is who knows? (laughs) This is a tournament that, you know, until a couple months ago was going to feature NHL players. And now it features players who, you know, from a Canadian perspective, um, are either almost as old as the two people communicating here on the radio or uh, young enough to be <laughs> grandchildren, perhaps. So, yeah, I mean, you have you have kids like Owen Power, Mason McTavish, uh, who still aren't old enough to rent cars from budget, but are old enough to vote. Um, and then you have, you know, uh, old graybeards like Eric Stahl, who's been playing almost since television was in black and white. And you have a bunch of guys in between from Europe and sort of uh, second and, and third level pro um, who aren't under NHL contract, and they're all going to come together and skate with the Maple Leaf on their chest. And I would argue, Scott, this is going to be a grossly unpopular opinion, that this is the best form of the Olympics, that, you know, pro hockey players, fine. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if we're going to get into a true Olympic spirit, um, you know, there's a lot more oxygen to go around for other Olympians if the NHL isn't there. Good point. Uh, you talked about athletes and what happened with uh, the, the women's hockey in Russia, and I can't even imagine playing hockey with a mask on. Um, you know, I have a hard time walking with one on. Uh, what about athletes that have, have been tested positive and then end up quarantined? We, we've seen some brutal shots of their food and whatever. Like, what's happening with that? Yeah, I mean, if this isn't breaking news, unfortunately, I mean, uh, it was well publicized in in media and outlets and through national Olympic committees that, you know, China is not joking around when they're talking about maintaining COVID zero, that, um, you know, their testing regime was going to be real. It was going to be every day. It was going to tickle your brainstem when they stuck that thing up your nose and Mm. down your throat. So that was not going to be any kind of surprise or shouldn't have been a surprise. Um, There were talks about how long the quarantine period would last and what would happen. And, um, you know, what you've seen is that, yeah, like that is absolutely part of the daily life in Beijing right now. So, you know, Russia, you mentioned the Russian Olympic Committee, excuse me, um, has played three games in its preliminary round for women's hockey. They've been shorthanded each of those three games. And I don't mean penalties on the ice. I mean, people who have been in isolation or quarantine away from the rest of the team because of COVID positive tests.
What stands out for you at this point after the first weekend? I was talking to a, a sports prof, and he said, look out for mixed uh, curling. So for fun, I watched it this weekend, and I think the only thing that was missing was the cocktails. Uh, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing so far? I think, I mean, it's been interesting. It's been kind of a muted um, entry point. That usually, you know, even folks who sort of poo-poo the Olympics, and I'm talking here in North America, not necessarily the competitors in Beijing, but y- you get people saying, oh, I don't want to see Olympics. Oh, the IOC is this, the IOC is that, oh, the bid process this. But then inevitably, 46 hours later, that same person is now an absolute expert in biathlon <laughs> and has really, really long and hardcore opinions on ski jump and the proper form and, and the <laughs> launch points. Um, that happened, I think, you know, in Tokyo. Um, you know, people are like, ah, why are they even hosting this? It's COVID. And then Andre de Grasse and Penny Alexiak come up and all of a sudden, here we go, right? Like that was almost instantaneous. The second you started seeing those results, it seems a bit less so here. And I don't know whether that's a factor of, you know, approaching the two year anniversary of this pandemic or the fact that those last Olympics in Tokyo seemed to end about 36 minutes ago, or maybe that there just hasn't been a Canadian story that's captured the intention. But you take a look at, you know, the television ratings. And again, we're only a couple of days in here. But the television ratings in NBC in the United States and what the audiences have been here in Canada on the CBC, they've been pretty weak. And the early returns suggest that, you know, we're sitting here talking about it, Scott, but maybe not a lot of people listening have been watching it yet. Sean Fitzgerald with us, managing editor, feature writer at The Athletic, theathletic.com to find out more. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Happy viewing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Some developments in the Ottawa protest story earlier on uh, today. Uh, a judge, a Ontario Superior Court, uh, Ontario Superior Court judge, uh, has issued an injunction. This is from the city of, of Ottawa to stop the noise, get the horns to stop uh, in Ottawa. They were granted that injunction. What does that mean? Also, a state of emergency declared uh, as well in the nation's capital over the weekend. Let's bring in Andrew McDougall, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, and with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Good afternoon. So let's uh, decode all this and tell us what it means, the advantage of declaring a state of emergency over the weekend and now this injunction uh, stopping the noise. It seems, my goodness, if it was that easy, why didn't we do it days ago? Yeah, I think to a degree, these are are small steps that they're taking, but it signals that they'd like to take a more muscular approach to to dismantling the protests. Whether or not it's a fundamental shift, though, in what they can do, though, it is really remains to be seen. I mean, the uh, the mayor got out and said that really what this amounts to is helping him to cut through a little bit of the uh, red tape that might exist around procurement, but it's not a, a huge shift. And, you know, there was some commentary around the injunction that was granted about, you know, how exactly that's going to be enforced, I think, is still up in the air. But it definitely, I think, signifies a little bit of a shift in tone from the people in Ottawa that uh, they're beginning to lose patience with uh, with what they've seen. Uh, what about the federal government on this? It seems we're seeing uh, the safety minister and public awareness minister uh, come out to, uh, today. And basically, Bill Blair said, you know, we can't tell city police departments uh, what to do. I'm, I'm not sure that's what the city of Ottawa wanted to hear today at day 11. No, it's, it's very much the case of real jurisdictional issues that are at play here. I mean, the uh, convoy may have sort of started around getting the restri- lifting the, the federal government's restrictions on truckers crossing the borders, but it's, it's obviously spiraled into something that's much more than that and going after restrictions that are imposed by all levels of government. And 
obviously, you know, Ottawa is a symbolic capital of the country. This is trying to, you know, bring a lot of attention to this issue, but there's very little that Ottawa can do with a lot of the things that they're upset about. And there's very little that they can do when it comes to sort of local policing issues, sort of stuff that's run by the province or, or the city. So their hands are really tied. Uh, on, how about of, talk? Of how about even do. talking? How about even talking to them, though, Andrew, and, and, and even trying to dial down the tone? It seems that day 11, these aren't the sort of discussions we should be having. Yeah, I think uh, Justin Trudeau has sort of signified that he is is reluctant to a degree to to do that. And I think there's a fear that if he comes out and he's seen to be either negotiating or sort of conceding to what some of uh, you know the convoy has been asking for, that that will actually just make a, a bad situation worse. And it'll signify to the next you know protest that shows up that so long as they stay there, so long as they're disruptive, uh, eventually they're going to be able to see some results. So he really doesn't want to do that. But of course, it has been going on for some time. So I think he's feeling a lot of pressure to be seen to be out there, to be you know aware of the situation and, and to be doing what he can to find a resolution. But that's uh, that's a pretty tricky path to walk down. Are the feds uh, passing the buck here? I mean, again, it's day 11. It's kind of late to be saying, hey, this is your problem, not ours. If you make a formal request, we can see what we we can do. But let's be honest, they're not, you know, they're not protesting on the steps of the premier's uh, front yard. They're, they're doing it at the prime minister's. Are you surprised we haven't heard from the prime minister um, again, on 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 just how this is all unfolded, it it, is, it appeared his choice to ignore it hasn't worked. Well, I mean, again, I don't know if it's fair to say it's really buck passing because, again, a lot of this really just isn't in his jurisdiction. So, you know, if he were to get out there and try to say, I'm going to find a solution or just sort of be in front of the cameras and saying that, you know, he's trying to work through it, it might give off the impression to people that he does have more control than he actually does. So I think you know, he's got to be very, very careful about what the imagery here is and, and, and what he says. So it's um, more about his political success than it is the city of Ottawa or, or even Canada, for that matter. I don't think necessarily you can really put it that way. I mean, there are legitimate constitutional issues about what he can deal with. And, and Ottawa has been very clear that some of this involves the city, some of it involves the national capital region. Uh, some of it, you know, if you were looking at the original cause of this with the uh, truckers crossing the, the boundaries, uh, crossing the border, that might be in Ottawa's jurisdiction, but it goes a lot wider than that. And you got to put again on top of that, this fear that if, you know, he, if Trudeau gets out there and, and seems to be caving in or to be negotiating, then what kind of an image does that send to uh, people who might think that this is a way of getting things done in Ottawa? He doesn't want to send off that impression. So I think for right now, pretty much everybody has been hoping that this would sort of dissipate on its own and that people would, you know, the people who are involved would say, look, we've got our point across. People are aware that we're angry. You know, maybe it's time to sort of call this off. I think people of, you know, sort of an official Ottawa and official Toronto and, and official, you know, in Queen's Park have got to hope that that would be the path this would take. Uh, so far, it hasn't yet. And so that's why I think you've seen a little bit of this shift today where maybe they're trying to be a little bit more muscular here, but it's it's a delicate situation. Um, what about Wellington Street itself? Uh, I've heard that that's in the parliamentary precinct, that that is federal land, that that is federal responsibility. So again, they're on the steps of parliament. Is that not something he should ad address? I wouldn't want to get too far into that because this can get quite technical in terms of who's got what jurisdiction and who's policing what. And I really wouldn't. It be sounds like to passing that the level of granularity. It sounds like passing the buck, Andrew. We're not finding a solution here. We're just finding more reasons why they can't act. 
Well, I mean, you've certainly seen, you know, there was a little bit of a protest, uh, certainly nothing like what we've seen in Ottawa, but there was a protest here in Toronto where some people felt, you know, that they wanted to take some of their concerns to Queen's Park because, you know, Queen's Park has a role that's involved in this. And I, I think there is some pressure that's on the Prime Minister to be seen to be doing a little bit, but for the reasons that we've already discussed, I mean, how far do you want to go if you were to get out there and say, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to be the symbolic face of this, you know, Justin Trudeau may be in a position where suddenly he wouldn't be able to deliver on on anything he might be able to say if he's not the one that's responsible for it. And he would give off this impression again that, you know, this this is how you get to the federal government's attention is by showing up and, and shutting down Ottawa. And I don't think anybody wants to see that uh, that happen. I think it's far, far too late for that, Andrew. These are these are discussions he should have had over a week ago. Uh, Andrew McDougall with his assistant professor, Canadian politics, public law, University of Toronto. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um, as we get so many of us uh, vaccinated and uh, kudos to everybody who's jumped on board and, and got vaccinated and, uh, and and did their part in uh, this province and this country to to get us where we are. And it's a result of that where, well, we are where we are. And uh, good news, uh, Omicron, although highly transmissible, uh, has not uh, seemed to have hit our healthcare system as hard as Delta. That being said, uh, still under strain and uh, obviously as uh, we come out of this, we have to do it with care and caution. Uh, to talk more about what it is like to come out of this, what do we do now? Dr. Colin Furness with his epidemiologist assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalat Lana School of Public Health. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. My pleasure and thank you. So we heard, uh, my, it was two weeks ago now, Dr. Bonnie Henry out of British Columbia and Dr. Kieran Moore here in Ontario saying that uh, it is time to learn how to live with this and how to slowly ease back to uh, lowering the restrictions and such. Your thoughts at where we are at this stage, doctor? I guess we can, we can talk about learning to live with this in two ways. One is just to give up and the other is mm. to be smart and to try and stay safe without these unsustainable lockdowns and restrictions. I suspect that those two medical officers of health were really just talking about stopping, just stopping. And, and I disagree with that. Um, we can't continue to do boom and bust lockdowns and opens. What we need to do instead, and a lot of us have been saying this for two years now, is be smarter. Let's recognize COVID is airborne. Let's give people N95 masks to wear when they need it. Let's let people protect themselves with a mask like that and and let's um let's invoke um air quality standards let's 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 put air quality mandates in restaurants and other sorts of places so that they can be open without transmission we, we could have done this ages ago instead we've been opening and closing and opening and closing so i think we could be better smarter safer but i do not endorse just throwing up our hands and saying let's all let's all let's all welcome a, a brain invasive virus i'm not okay with that did you get the impression that's what Dr. Henry and Dr. Moore were saying? Because I sort of got the feeling that it was, you know, we're at this stage. Keep uh, obviously exercising uh, common sense in what you're doing, but a gradual reduction in all of this. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I still remember Dr. Moore on December 30th. Uh, blithely telling the population of Ontario that kids were going back to school without any kind of additional protections in any way, shape or form. And that to me looked like giving up. And I haven't heard him say COVID is airborne and we've been doing it wrong. I haven't heard him say 
all the unsafe work, work refusals that the government has thrown out, we need to take another look at. I haven't heard him say staying safe from COVID. I've heard him saying learn to live with it. And again, it's it's really open to interpretation. So I, you know, I'm not optimistic. And and for Dr. Henry to to be so dead set against N95 masks um, is to me is is honestly really puzzling. It's 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 as if the secret plan is to infect everybody. I don't think that's necessarily the case, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's I'm pretty hard-pressed to explain why you would want to withhold a certain kind of mask design from people that we know works really well. Um, what about the fact that uh, post-Christmas, it seemed that many of us uh, came down with it, yours truly included, um, has that changed the attitude of people? Because, you know, we're seeing even with the prime minister, uh, you know, triple shot, he's he, he's obviously come down with it. And, and let's be honest, much, much, much more mild uh, symptoms as a result of the vaccine. And we encourage everyone uh, to do this. But do you, do you get the feeling or, or obviously you don't? It, it, it's time to move forward with this. I mean, the, the, you know, this is where we are at this stage. No. Well, I mean, yes and no. I, I hear you loud and clear. And there's a lot of people for whom COVID is not going to be a major threat. I have, I have a caveat to that. And that is that even with minor cases, you're still, as far as we know, subject to loss of brain tissue. And that's not something you're going to necessarily notice right away. So when we say it's not so severe, I think we ought to just take a second look at what some of the less visible effects are. But the other thing is there's people, and, and they're all under the age of five, who we're supposed to protect as a society, right? That's kind of the social contract. They can't be vaccinated. And we have seen really high hospitalization rates for young kids. And that's because Omicron really is vicious if you're not vaccinated in the same way that it's mild for many people if you are. There's also people with underlying health conditions, other kinds of risk factors, including being old or having compromised immune systems. There's a lot of people who fit in that category. The pandemic isn't over for them. So I think when we say, hey, let's all take off our masks and learn to live with it, well, we also have to recognize are all the people who can't. And, you know, you can't saran wrap little kids and keep them away from their parents and their older siblings. So, you know, we've got some reckoning to do again, which is why rather than just messaging, hey, let's learn to live with this. I would much rather hear us saying, let's invoke the steps that we need to. Let's be smart. Let's use science. Let's protect people who need protecting because that's the discourse that's missing. Um, what about the state of our mental health at this stage of the pandemic? Uh, we've certainly seen stats over the course of, of this over two years, but it seems post holiday, it, it, it's really ramped up. Uh, what about the state of people's mental health at this stage of the pandemic? Well, I think there's, you're going to see there's a wide range of people coping well or coping not well. And as time marches on and we go through this boom and bust, of lockdowns and restrictions, I think it takes a terrible, terrible toll. And again, if, if we had acted um, with a bit of alacrity and used science, we wouldn't have needed to do that. So it's I'm the, not sure the, what else. What else could we have done, uh, Colin? What what uh, what could we have done looking back that would have solved a lot of this? Well, I think admitting that COVID COVID is airborne. If you bring a knife to a gunfight, you can't expect to win. COVID moves through the air. So we need to regulate air. It's, it's really very simple. You know, we don't poop in our drinking water because we know better. So we should manage our air the same way. And, and mass design, it really just gets down to managing indoor air and giving people and endorsing people using masks that work. It's actually not that complicated. But the problem is we're still stuck on a large droplet model for disease transmission. 
we're bringing a knife to a gunfight. So if you ask me, what should we be doing? We got to go get a gun. We got to go fight the fight that needs fighting and not the one that we wish we could fight. And that's the big difference right there. Uh, where do we need a big gun at this stage of the pandemic? Well, as I watch child hospitalizations, and I think to myself, this is all avoidable, I would say, yeah, but the big gun here is not lockdowns. The big gun here is treating COVID like an airborne pathogen. And we have not yet said it in Ontario. We haven't really said it in any province. New Brunswick's a little bit ahead of us. Uh, Dr. Moore mused that maybe it's in the air. This is preposterous. Well, wait a second. I think it's, hasn't it always been aware that we've always been aware it's in the air, doctor? I mean, at the very beginning, it was hand, sand, and surfaces people were worried about. But don't we all know that it's transmissible via the air? I mean, I, I think we've known that for a while, have we not? A lot of people have, but it's not in policy. That's the big problem. We're not taking steps we need to. I think, as far as I know, 100% of unsafe work refusals based on airborne transmission have been thrown out by the Ministry of Labor. I participated in one of those, and I heard what the arbiter said. He said, if our chief medical officer of health says it's droplet, it's droplet. And that was that guided it. We've put people in harm's way. Um, we put people in harm's way as a matter of policy in this province. So, yeah, have we all known it's airborne? Yeah, except for the politicians and the public health decision makers who have not been taking the steps we need to take. That's what's frustrating. So more masking and air purification would have kept us out of this? I believe so. Uh, we also needed to be a little bit smarter. I mean, no one could stop Omicron from showing up. We could have, should have acted with alacrity to very briefly do some strategic closures, not big full lockdowns, but just in places where people are sharing air, especially when they're not being properly regulated. We don't have a great vaccine uh, credential system. It's easy to forge. It's burdensome to restaurants. Some weren't bothering. There's no air standards. So we set ourselves up for it to be as bad as possible. I think we probably needed restaurants closed for a couple of weeks in, in December and gyms and maybe movie theaters, but not for long, just until just until this really fast wave came and went. And, and we've we really made it about as bad for ourselves as we could. Dr. Colin Furness with us, epidemiologist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalalana School of Public Health. As always, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. On the world stage, as the Olympics uh, go on, uh, some are meeting together there. Some are not. And uh, some interesting uh, meetings going on in regard to the tensions uh, in, U- in Ukraine along the Russian border. French President Macron has met with the Russian uh, Russian President Putin. And earlier on today, U.S. President Biden and the new German Chancellor spoke. Uh, what is going on? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thanks. Same to you, Scott. So what do you think the conversation between Biden and the German chancellor was all about? Obviously, we know that Germany gets uh, its natural gas from Russia and has been reluctant to speak out uh, in favor of Ukraine. What, what do you think this discussion was about today? It's primarily to demonstrate to the world that the NATO alliance is alive and well and strong and is going to be a player. It was meant to demonstrate that, remember, Germany being the biggest economy and uh, perhaps the leader of the EU, uh, is is in lockstep with, uh, as they put it, there's no diff, no distance between the U.S. and Germany on this. The new chancellor, of course, is uh, in a sense this is a coming out party for him. Uh, he's having his moment with the U.S. president and lots of press. So it was a, an effort to show that there is unity, and if Russia makes the mistake of 
moving troops across the border that Germany and uh, the United States and therefore all the rest of NATO are in lockstep on that. There will be a severe cost. How does that affect uh, Germany's relationship with Russia, considering they need so much energy from Russia? Yes, this was raised over and over again because Nord Stream 2, that pipeline that has been built but not not yet become operational, which is a pipeline that skips the overland route through Ukraine and Poland in order to get to Germany, and they've, those two states collect transit fees, a billion a year, apparently. Uh, this is a way to bypass that. Uh, and Germany uh, has been a little coy on what would, what would happen. Would they really jeopardize that in order to maintain NATO unity? And the, um, the answer came loud and clear. Actually, nuanced. Uh, uh, Joe Biden interrupted, uh, interceded and said, if there's any movement of troops or uh, military of any type across the border into Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 is dead. It will not happen. He was most emphatic about that. Later, How can uh, he make that? How can he say that? He, he was asked precisely that, Scott, but you're a good journalist. He said, we can do it. And he, he, seemed, he did not give details, but he's quite confident that, I mm. think essentially that uh, you can cut off the access to the global finance markets, which are essential to keep that going. But I watched later an interview with uh, Olaf Scholz, with uh, the new chancellor on, on CNN, and he said, well, there's something you don't understand, that we are very committed to getting off oil and gas anyway in a very near future. We're not as dependent as you think we are on Russia now, and uh, we're going over to high, I think by 2035, we, we plan to be off, off uh, oil and gas altogether as part of our commitments on, you know, to, uh, on climate change. So stop worrying about it, essentially, is the message out of Germany. Hmm. French President Macron meets with uh, Putin. What's that about? Is that energy related as well? Well, that's his energy. <laughs> hmm. uh, he is uh, basically positioning himself to be the, the leader of the EU, and that he's going to be, um, particularly after Angela Merkel has departed from the scene politically, uh, he's got a special relationship of sorts, he feels, with, uh, with Russia in any event. They've dealt, to, dealt to, with each other over other issues in the past. Uh, there, there's something called the Normandy Contact Group or the Normandy uh, uh, format, which uh, France and Germany and Ukraine and the U.S. are part of. And that was mentioned, by the way, by Joe Biden, I think, twice. And that may be some messaging, basically saying we have a role to play here. We are part of the diplomatic off-ramp. We are offering to mediate uh, between the parties on this issue. So Macron is trying to position himself, as is Turkey, by the way, Erdogan, as the mediator in the way out of this conflict, the potential It seems conflict. to be, there seems to be more cooks in the kitchen now. Yes. Uh, but all that means there's a flurry of diplomatic activity at a time when they're trying to avert war. And I think that's a, a normal procedure. I think we should keep in mind that uh, Russia has really gained already a lot of what it wants out of this, that They've gained Russia being back at the center of things, meaning Putin is back at the center of world affairs. Uh, the EU uh, has, has um, been uh, confronted in a sense. The, the, how can we put this? Consolidation of democracy within Ukraine has been impeded by all of this, and that's a big, a big success. 
one thing that we know for sure is that Putin wants to have a, an autocratic wall <laughs> between him, between Russia and the rest of the world. We talked about this in regard to what's going on with him and China. But also the West now seems to be agreeing to change its security architecture and response as a way off. So he's had a lot of success already, but he's also failed because the NATO alliance is probably stronger than ever. Uh, in recent times, it's really come back that uh, he's uh, uh, this buffer zone that he wants with uh, uh, with China and all around his perimeter. China is offering a way out at a, at a cost of any potential sanctions over over oil and gas, and uh, mm. saying, you know, you're not trapped. We're we're here to help, but I'm not sure how close Russia wants to be as a dependency of China as well. Elliot Tepper, political science, Carleton University. This is getting more fascinating by the uh, day. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Oh, you're very welcome, and let's keep chatting about this. Yes, it's fascinating to watch. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I want to read you something. This is out of uh, a piece out of Politico, uh, which you can find online. Uh, and this is an interesting excerpt. Listen to this. It's clear uh, that the staging of the Olympic Games will do a lot for the improvement of human rights and social relations in China, said the then president of the IOC in 2001. When Beijing was vying to host the 2008 Summer Olympics, he echoed Beijing's deputy mayor who claimed, quote, by applying for the Olympics, we want to promote not just the city's development, but the development of society, including democracy and human rights. Even neutral observers hope that despite China's questionable track record, awarding it the Olympics back then could be a small step towards open doors, open windows, open Internet, open discussion. What happened? Uh, let us bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Scott. Thank you. We we also remember not only this with the Olympics, but way back when, before the handing over of Hong Kong, many thought that China would realize what had Hong Kong has become and be more like them. Instead, they've done the opposite and turned Hong Kong more like China used to be. Uh, what happened with the Olympics? This was supposed to be a coming out party for them, and, and now we seem to be at the opposite. Well, in a different place. And you're right, um, much of the world, I think for good reason, hoped that um, increased interaction with, with the West would change China in fundamental ways. Um, it hasn't worked out that way. Um, China has gone its own path and, in fact, intensified following its own path. Uh, Olympics has been a prestige event for them. I mean, I, I, in favor of the Olympics, I'm not in favor of canceling it. Uh, I think it's important for our athletes. But the idea that, as a corollary somehow, that there's going to be liberalization with China, that has proven to be a false hope completely false hope how would they explain this past position because this is what they were selling a while ago well they would probably say or they might well say they probably say it now at least that by of course democracy because china does claim to be democracy and they have their own definition of democracy <laughs> and their own definition of human rights and they say things like well most important is uh, are the social rights and uh, people having enough food to eat and clothes and opportunities. Of course, that's that's true as far as it goes. But the other stuff, the political rights, uh, they fall silent or they just emphasize the other side of the equation or they will even sometimes claim that there are full human rights. If you read the Chinese constitution, 
It's a wonderful document, most of it. Includes all sorts of things in there that would be very nice if they were true. They're simply just they're there as words and they're not, um, they're not practiced. Uh, this past weekend, as the Olympics getting underway, I uh, saw the photo op between the presidents of China and Russia. The significance of that shot? Well, that is an important shot. Of course, they've met before. Chinese presidents have gone to China and met with Xi Jinping. Putin and Xi get together on a fairly regular basis. It's ominous in some ways because the statement that came out between the two after their meeting referenced Chinese support for um, the non-expansion or the Chinese opposition to the expansion of NATO, etc. I think that's probably what Putin was looking for. I don't actually think that China wants Putin to invade. I think they probably don't want him to invade. But that is a really important um, alliance. I don't think there's a huge amount of trust between them at the end of the day, but it combines a country, China, uh, Russia, with a massive military capacity, but a weak economy, with a country with still growing nuclear forces, that is China, capable military, and a massive economy. So it's uh, it um, it's in a powerful um, combination, and it represents a net challenge to the West. We remember uh, several months ago, there was chatter about what was going to happen with the Olympics, whether they would be a full boycott. There ended up being a diplomatic boycott, considering uh, that China's meeting with everybody else that's there. Uh, should we have just showed up to be a fly on the wall? Well, I thought the diplomatic boycott was a, I mean, it's too much to expect the Olympics to fix things in China. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't believe that. I wasn't, you know, just somehow that this international meeting, the IOC and all these athletes are somehow going to remake China as the way we wish it would to be. So people wish that, and that's kind, that's nice. It was, just wasn't going to happen. I wasn't in favor of canceling the whole thing. Diplomatic uh, boycott was a pretty modest step. I don't think it did any harm. It sent a point. And to that extent, it probably is better that we don't have, and I think there aren't actually major Western leaders who are there. That sends a signal as well. George Bush, I think, went to, uh, the 2008 right. Olympics, not the time to do that. So I thought it was a modest but necessary step. Uh, what about the athletes, the treatment of them? We were all concerned about that going into this. Um, uh, they have been warned, obviously, not to protest. That's pretty calm, pretty pretty good advice uh, considering where you are and what the two Michaels have certainly been through over their time. Um, and now we're hearing those that have tested positive are in pretty dismal quarantine uh, situations. Uh, anything you can tell us about the treatment of our athletes, and will this raise the ire of the world? Well, it's a silly thing for the Chinese to have done, because I get that they're hyper. They've got a zero-COVID policy. They've got a, even if you don't think that the statistics are complete, they've had very low death level uh, by these draconian measures. And if that's a good thing, well, obviously people being alive is a good thing. Um, but they have the financial means now to provide um, Cadillac-level service of meals and comfort, even while being in isolation. So hmm. to me, it's a real own goal. I understand they're trying to fix it, improving the meal quality, et cetera, those in isolation, but that's a big gap. I suspect top Chinese officials are probably embarrassed by it because they've got all the money in the world. They're spending $4 billion U.S. for the games. They certainly could have, have done that. I don't think that – I think that's more incompetence. Uh, insensitivity, you know, treating their own citizens that way is one thing. Yeah. But for these guest athletes, it's not in their interest to be 
parsimonious and to have, give them shoddy food for heaven's sakes. Well, I guess when you think about it, there's lots of stuff that isn't in their best interest, but that's from our point of view. Uh, Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute and professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. The same. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.